Okay. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli salatin kamila wa sallam salaman taman ala nabiyyan tanhalu bihi al-uqad wa tanfariju bihi al-qurab. Wa tukta bihi al-hawaij wa tunalu bihi al-ragaib. Husnan khawatim wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. So alhamdulillah we're beginning a new text on this Sunday. Uh, before we begin, a couple things. Number one is that, uh, as I mentioned, alhamdulillah, now the devotion that we read, the word of Imam al-Nawi and the text are both by al-Nawi. So that's kind of cool. And al-Nawi is a really important figure in Islamic history. We'll do his biography in the beginning, inshallah. Uh, the other thing is to uh, mention that... Um, Questions are always welcome, you know, uh, especially after we finish. If you don't want it to be online or something, that's fine. After we finish and we stop the recording, people should ask questions. If it's related, it's related. If it's not related, it's not related. That's okay. Uh, there's a lot of things that are in need of some level of conversation, and they're not always even what the topic is. So, uh, but that's okay, you know. <coughs> Uh, what else? So here we are, Inouye. Inouye wrote a many, many, many wor- works actually. We'll do his bio formally, but before we do that, to do this. Um, Sheikh Musa Ferber, Hafidullah, has done two translations. One of them is called Etiquettes with the Quran, and this one is called Connecting to the Quran. So, what the situation is, is that Inouye himself, he wrote a book called Tibyan fi Adab Hamalat al Quran. Which is the clarification on the etiquettes of those who carry the Qur'an. Okay? So it's a book that covers a lot of topics. You'll see which ones they are because they're basically the same as here. And he translated the whole thing. It's a really nice translation. It's a great work in Arabic. And, uh, but the feeling is kind of like it's, it's a little bit long to teach normally in most settings. Unless you're like in a class setting or something. And obviously it's different. But in a community setting, it's a little bit long to teach. And then I found, subhanAllah, he had done this translation. called it Connecting to the Qur'an. Which is on a work I didn't even know existed. Which is that, in we abridged his own tibyan. So he wrote, Mukhtasar al-tibyan. He did an abridgment of his own book. And, and then Sheikh Musa translated this as well. So this one's a little bit lighter. We'll be able to cover it with taking a little bit less time. But we'll cover it in detail, inshallah. Um, another point is that, for anyone who's new, is that there's no assigned seating. So if you feel like you need to move around, if you need to move chairs and go somewhere that works for you or whatever, uh, just feel free to do so, inshallah. There's no, um, no haraj, like don't feel any... It's all good. The part, of the, part of the idea of the majlis was essentially that we wanted to have a public living room. Public living room, right? It's like when you invite people to your home, you give them some food, you might discuss some things, you might talk about some things. Everyone feels kind of comfortable. They don't feel the same shyness that they might feel or awkwardness that they might feel in other places. So from the time that we started in Orange and then all the way up to here, the idea is basically that it's just a public living room. So, you know, imagine you're visiting a friend and you're just sitting in the living room and 
having a conversation, covering some material and having some food together. And inshallah, it's all good. So that being said, we'll begin connecting to the Qur'an. Connecting to the Qur'an by An-Nawawi. He starts off by saying what I just said about the abridgment. And then he goes into the biography. Generally speaking, like, how should I say this? The classical texts don't always start with a biography. Okay, so normally, like the biography of a Noahui obviously isn't part of the original work of a Noahui, right? It would just start with his introduction. But, but the tradition is always that if you're going to teach a text, you give an introduction to the person. Because you should know who the person is. You should know something about, like if I'm going to spend... I don't know how long this will take us, probably like somewhere between, depending on how carried away I get on at different points, probably somewhere between like six to ten sessions. So we're going to sit here for two and a half months, three months, maybe a lot of the summer, we're going to read from a know who he should know who he is. It might take 20, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to know who he is, and make dua for him, and ask Allah to forgive him, and ask Allah to accept from him, and so on and so forth. Um, and then also another part of that is that we learn a lot about how, what we can strive to by reading someone's biography, right? Like, when you know something about the person, then you know, like, oh, that's how people spent their time. You know, I was reading, there's a little biographical piece I read today, and I almost translated it and posted it, but then, I don't know, I decided not to. But there was uh, one of the modern scholars, his name is Sheikh Muhammad al-Khudri in Egypt. <coughs> Someone else was writing about him, and he said, I heard from the Sheikh that he would spend six hours daily at his desk between reading and writing and just like editing and stuff like that. He'd sit at his desk for six hours straight and he'd work. And all of the books that he had in manuscript form and stuff like that, he would copy them by hand and edit them by hand and work on them by hand and so on. And on top of that, and all of his other, like usually they have some teaching, they have some other stuff too, right? But in addition, the six hours. And then also he would read four juz of the Quran every day. And uh, they said that he never was afflicted with any illness or sickness or anything. And they said that everything that he had was from the barakah of the Qur'an. It's from the blessing of the Qur'an. You know? That he had this, no matter what he was doing, he was reading four juz a day. And uh, some of the shiikh, they always say, Man That they read five juz a day. The one who reads five doesn't forget. So their daily review will be five juz. Sheikh Muhib, I don't know where he is now, but he used to be here in Anaheim. Hafizahullah. Uh, Sheikh Muhib will read five juz a day. He'll read five juz in an hour and 15 minutes. Off his memory. <laughs> you know. uh, so, one of the shiuch, um, current, cur- current uh, Sheikh Ahmed al-Masarawi, he's uh, one of the big qurra. He said he, he'll read similar, roughly five juz a day from his memory. And he'll do one khatam, and then the next time he does khatam, he'll do it in a different qira'at. All from his memory. And go through all the qira'at, and then he come to the front one, do it again. And repeat it again. And they asked him, like, Mulana, when was the last time you looked in the mushaf? Like, to, you know, do your review or something like that. And he was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe 20, 30 years last time. <laughs> like, no, no mushaf needed, you know? Just, so... It's good to read people's biographies, understand them, stuff like that. Also, when we read people's biographies, 
it increases our adab with the people that came before us. And this is an important issue. Because you have kind of like trends on various sides in uh, the Muslim community, like the modern Muslim experience, that are very dismissal toward, dismissive towards the people who came before. So they're very quick to say like, a Noe, for example, like a Noe, yeah, he wrote all these good books, but his aqidah wasn't sound. They're like, can, like, did we read the same biography? It's okay to critique, like, of course, you can dis- differ with someone. Say like, I don't agree with this issue, I don't agree with that issue. But if like, all these thousands of people are wrong and you're the only one who is right, maybe it's the other way around, you know? And maybe, or maybe you should be a little bit more patient in the way that you're dealing with things, asking questions and so on. So it's good to read their biographies. Imam al Nawi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, lived from 631 to 676 after Hijra. 631 to 676 after Hijra, which means he was how old when he died? 631 to 676. 45. 45 Hijri years old when he died. You know? Give you, give you an idea, comparison. Uh, one of the brothers told me we have a similar birthday and we always talk about like the importance of turning 40 years old and how excited we are to turn 40 years old and stuff like that and I saw him recently and he's like you know you're 40 right I was like really alhamdulillah like, I made it so I'm 40 Hijri I'm 40 Hijri Imam Noe died at 45 Hijri okay so people that we know like you know that we probably consider kind of like younger are older than him <laughs> than he was when he died rahimahullah this corresponds to 1233 to 1277 in the gregorian calendar right so about 800 years ago 631 to 676 he was born in the town of newa that's why he's called newawi he's born in the town of newa which is outside damascus uh Especially in the period right after, like closer to 9-11, it's not as much of an issue now. But some of you might remember when it was like closer to 9-11 in the early 2000s, there was a lot of harassment at the airports. Now it's still there, but even then it was even more. And like a common thing that was known between students who were studying in other places is you have to be careful if you travel with and know these books. I said this before here. Does anyone remember why? Or anyone can guess why? Nuclear. Nuclear. <laughs> so in like modern Arabic, Nawawi is used for like nuclear engineering. And Hendesa Nawawiya is nuclear engineering. So if you're like traveling in the airport and they open your bag and you have five books that say Nawawi on it, people will start getting worried and stuff. <laughs> he lost in translation. Right? Lost in trans- completely lost in translation, right? Uh, <laughs> they used to do it, subhanAllah. They used to stop us and like photocopy everything in our bags. So you'd be sitting there for hours, you know, take out all the books, photocopy them, take any papers, photocopy them, anyone's phone number that you had, it's getting put in the file. So we'd have to like delete everything and be very strategic what we're traveling with and stuff. It's a huge headache. Alhamdulillah, it got resolved. Uh, so he was born in Nawa. His hometown is Nawa, outside of Damascus. He is the pious, ascetic, most learned, scrupulously God-weary, accomplished jurist and hadith master known as the impeccable Shaykh al-Islam by the unanimity of the people of the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa bi ahna sunnah he's Shaykh al-Islam one of the things that's important to note here and I don't this is purely an academic point I'm not saying this to throw shade at anyone uh, sometimes when you talk to people 
the course of the conversation will make you feel like there is only one Shaykh in Islam in all of Islamic history. And that's Ibn Taymiyyah, who was like he's a legitimate scholar in the Hanbali school and everything else, there's no problem. But he's not the only person that had the title Shaykh al Islam. Like, Shaykh al Islam was Imam al Nawawi was called Shaykh al Islam. Uh, Zakaria al Ansari was called Shaykh al Islam. The head of the, whoever the head Ottoman Sheikh was, was called Sheikh al Islam, because he was the head Sheikh of the Ottoman Empire, right? So many people had this title, is my point. He was, it's one of the titles they gave him, Sheikh al Islam. And Nawawi was fearless before kings, yet lordly and chaste. Meaning, what does he mean by this statement? means when he comes in front of a king or a ruler of someone of excess power, he's completely fearless. And at the same time, he's very humble. That's what he's trying to get at, right? He's chaste and he's God lordly, and at the same time, fearless. So on certain things, he'd be absolutely fearless. Actually, there's an incident, it's not mentioned in here, but there's an incident that like he, uh, he gave like advice to one of the rulers and they didn't listen to him. And he left Damascus. And when they got really, you know, they got upset, like he left Damascus and so on and so forth. He's like, I'm not coming back until this person dies. And then the king died. The ruler died and he came back. Right? So they were like very, uh, people were very strong, you know. And one thing you'll see is like, from, the, from these kind of figures, you'll see scholars who have different levels of interaction with the apparatus of the state and stuff like that. That exists. But one of the common threads is kind of like this very uh, independent naza'ah. I don't know what naza'ah is in English. Like, uh, like they're really fiercely independent. Like nobody's going to control me. Because when the person is a scholar and they're looked at, like look, we're here 800 years later. If a Noah we said something, we take that into consideration. Like we're 800 years later, and we'd be like, I don't know, and no, we said this, you know, like it mattered. So these kind of, they understood this because they lived their life like that, reading the biographies and stuff like they know, okay, we make decisions based on 500 years later. And if this person said it, I think about it. I consider it, right? So they live their lives like I cannot be controlled by anyone and I cannot be controlled by anything. I will not subject myself to anything. So if they felt like even the slightest amount of uh, someone trying to take advantage of them or something, they'd completely react. And it's not out of lack of humility. It's out of actually preserving the independence of the scholarly endeavor. You know? An example of this is Ibn Dikhik al-Aid. Rahimahullah. <coughs> Ibn Dikhik, he lived in, um, in Cairo. He's buried in Cairo. And he was a mujtahid, and a, like a scholar in the Maliki and Shafi'i school. And he was one of the top scholars of his time. And they really pushed him to become Qadi al-Qudah. They really wanted him to be like the senior judge uh, in all of the lands, right? In, in all of that area. And he was refusing. It's like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna get involved in this. You know, I'm refusing this, I'm refusing this, I'm refusing. They kept pushing, they kept pushing. He's like, fine, I'll get involved on one condition. My condition is, you people, like you rulers, you don't interfere in anything that I do, okay? You have no influence here. I will do what I feel is sound and just and what it should be done and you have no influence over it Right, so he's like, okay Then uh, he becomes the judge time passes he rules whatever one day a case comes to him They bring the case and Someone died and they're trying to figure out what to do with this person's inheritance a very wealthy person 
and one of the people who's like from the ruling class comes. He wasn't like the governor or mayor or something, but he's like very close. He comes and he says uh, basically that he has a right to this inheritance. Uh, and someone and they say, okay, well, who's your witness? And he says, well, the ruler so and so is my witness. And he just yelled at him. He's like, get out of here. <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you, what do you, how do you bring him to me as a witness? He's, he's, and then he says, well, he to us, this ruler is just, like, who are indina adil. And he yelled at him and he said, uh, uh, what is the verse? Uh, something like, يقولون هو عندنا كذا وكذا ومن أنتم حتى يكون لكم وعنده. He's like, they say to us, he's, he's, just, he's just and trustworthy. And he yelled at them this line of poetry, which says like, they say that so-and-so is this and this. He said, but who are you to say anything in the first place? <laughs> like, who are you to even say anything? So he got really upset. And they were like, you know, then they sent him a letter. The ruler wants to see you, you know, come to him. The ruler wants to see you, sent him to the courthouse. So he got the letter in the courthouse. And he ripped up the letter, gave it back to the person who came with the letter. He closed the whole courthouse, shut the whole courthouse down. Like this is the cent- central courthouse in all of Cairo, right? Sent down, shut down the entire courthouse and sent letters to all the other judges, shut down your courthouses. So all the other judges, they're also anama, right? So they all shut down the courthouses. The whole city is like stopped, you know? Because why? Because you tried to interfere in a matter that you shouldn't be interfering in. You, a person of political authority, you tried, to, you tried to say, like, how I should be judging in a matter of the law, and it's not your business. So you, you have to know your position, and I know my position, right? So they shut down the whole thing anyways. It's a whole story. They shut down the whole thing. Finally, they get him to come talk to him, and then, like, they, the higher person, the governor, calls and talks to him, like, oh, so-and-so's here. He wants to apologize. He's like, so-and-so doesn't mean anything, and, like, I'm not going <laughs> to... It's just, like, a whole thing. Finally, he, he agreed afterwards. My point in all of this is to say that, like... They took this thing seriously. Like, this is the religion of Allah. I am a representative of the religion of Allah. And there's a severity to that situation. You know? So Noah was fearless in front of kings, he was, but he was lordly and chaste. He died young, yet in 45 years he produced unprecedented works of learning that elevated him to the status of a principal authority in the later Shafi'i school. So one thing to know about the Medhebs Obviously, you have the founder of the Medhab, right? You have Abu Hanifa, Shafi'i, not the, really the founder, but the namesake of the Medhab, let's say. Abu Hanifa, Shafi'i, Malik, Ahmed. And you have their students, and you have their students, and so on and so forth. The Medhab is not just the namesake of the Medhab. The Medhab is the hundreds and thousands of scholars that came afterwards and contributed to the work of the Medhab. Okay? So when you read like the Shafi'i Medhab today, and in the later period, Two people, I'm not Shafi'i, but two people who will always come up is a Ramli and a Nawi. A Ramli and a Nawi. So basically, like if a Ramli or a Nawi says this is actually the position of the Madhab, that's the Madhab. So to give you like, this is a very high, imagine you have thousands of Shafi'i scholars throughout history, and Nawi's in like the top two or three in the later period, after the first generation or two of Shafi'i. So just to give you like, he's very high in his Madhab. He's very high in, in fiqh and stuff. And these issues, okay? The Thahabi said about him, the Thahabi described him as the standard bearer of the friends of Allah. 
the standard bearer of the awliya, of the friends of Allah, al-Dhahabi. And Nawawi himself said, Allah has blessed me in the right use of my time. Allah has blessed me in the right use of my time. As-Sakhawi, As-Sakhawi was a major hadith scholar in roughly like the 900s, 9th century maybe, 800s, I think 800s. He said about Nawawi that he is the spiritual pole of the noble friends of Allah, the, le- the legist of humankind, the reviver of the sunnah and the slayer of innovation. So he says he's Qutbul Awliya and probably like Faqihun Faqihun Nas or something like that. Muhyi Sunnah and I don't know what. Probably some other word, I'm not sure. For getting rid of innovation. So he combines all of these titles with him. He was the greatest spiritual master of his time. And he was the top legal scholar of his time. And he's the one that brought the Sunnah back. And he's the one that got rid of the false teachings of the religion. Okay? His early teachers were um, a number of different people. When he first came to Damascus in 649 after Hijra, in four and a half months, he memorized Abu Ishaq al-Shirazi's At-Tanbih, which is a Shafi'i fiqh book, four and a half months, he memorized it, and a quarter of Al-Muhadhab, which is a larger book in the Shafi'i school. Then he went to Hajj. It's not in here, but it's said about Imam Inouye that he said himself, he went to Damascus when he was 18. So he did his primary studies in his Nawa, then he went to Damascus when he was 18. He himself said, and my side didn't touch the ground for the first two years that I was in Damascus. My side didn't touch the ground for the first two years I was in Damascus. What does it mean? It means that he would sleep sitting up. So he's studying. He gets, he gets overcome by sleep. He just sleep like this. Then he wakes up and go back to studying. For two years. Two years he spent like this. Uh, then he did other things, you know. He, he actually, like... Flirted a little bit with studying medicine, but decided not to. And then he studied really hard for like six solid years, after which he began to teach a little bit. They say he used to have like 12 classes a day, teach like every subject, go through everything. You know, one hour, one hour, one hour, one hour, one hour, anyone would come. After Fajr, a lot of the ulama, you see this. They're wherever they are, they start their day at Fajr, and then all their classes start. Shafi, even Shafi and Amr ibn As in Egypt, he used to teach after Fajr, he'd sit in the masjid, people would come to him. It's amazing to think about, you know. Uh, he was very ascetic, very humble person. He never ate nor slept except out of necessity. He didn't eat or sleep except out of necessity. He's not going to eat unless he has to eat. He's not going to sleep unless he's overcome by sleep. Uh, he fasted every single day. Fasted every single day. And he would only have a meal at dinner and some water in the morning. That was his schedule. Uh, <clears throat> one of the early Muslims, he was asked about food. Allah forgive us. You know. I'm not an example in this, but he said it, he was asked about food. He said, what do you say about a person that eats once a day? He said, that's the way of the NBA. It's the way of the prophets. He said, what do you say about a person who eats twice a day? He said, that's the way of the salihin. It's the way of the righteous people. He said, what do you say about someone who eats three times a day? <laughs> he said, you might as well bring the trough and let them eat all day long. <laughs> like what pigs eat out of the trough. Like you might as well bring the trough and just let them eat and eat and eat and eat. <laughs> different, different dieting method than the method of like, you know, small meals throughout the day and stuff. They had a different method. 
He divided his time. He only had like one outfit, basically. One small turban. You just wear it all the time. Uh, he avoided certain types of foods because he noticed that they caused drowsiness. So if you notice like a certain type of food would make him sleepy, he'd stop eating it. So he's like, if I eat that, it's going to make me tired. I won't be able to study. I won't be able to teach, so on. So he was very, very disciplined. And... In, in, um, at the same time that he was a master in fiqh, he was also a master in hadith sciences. So in hadith sciences, oftentimes his opinion agreed with actually the opinion of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, who was in the later period, he was known as Amir al-Mu'mineen fin hadith. The title Amir al-Mu'mineen fin hadith is like someone basically, they know everything there is to know about the sunnah. About hadith in particular. They know everything there is to know about hadith. To give you a kind of like comparison, The title in hadith below Amir al-Mu'mineen is Hakim. Hakim is someone who knows 500,000 hadith. Hujjah is someone who knows 300,000 hadith. Hafid is someone who knows 100,000 hadith. <laughs> okay? So these are the later titles. You know? MashaAllah. Assalamu alaikum. How are you, uncle? Good to see you, MashaAllah. Uh, so Ibn Hajr was known later on as... Amir al-Mu'mineen fil hadith Not many people had that title He's later Like maybe in Bukhari, Muslim it's different But Ibn Hajr is like later 800s Also buried in Kailan There's two Ibn Hajrs for your To note but this one's the one the Hadith one And no we agreed with him when they compared They agreed a lot on different things He uh, as we mentioned He gave consistent reminders To the people of, not, people of leadership He would go straight into their palace Tell them you should be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, you need to fix this. To the extent that in Malik al-Zahir he said, I'm afraid of him actually. <laughs> like he comes and he says these things and I'm afraid of him. And Malik, these are the people who like fought the crusaders. You know, it's a similar, it's all the same time period. So these are like really strong rulers. But he's saying, I'm, I'm afraid of a Noe. It's also said about a Noe that he wouldn't eat any of the fruit around Damascus. And his opinion on it was that the fruit in this area was... There were lands that were stolen by the rulers. The, the orchards are on. So if I eat the fruit from that land, then I'm eating fruit from stolen land. So he would abstain completely. Yeah, I know. You're saying. We live in America. What should we do? And immediately came into your mind was the image of that California shirt, that shirt that has California and then it says stolen land. I know. I know. It's exactly what came into your mind. Allah forgive us. He was the headmaster of Dar al Hadith al Ashrafiyya. Uh, there's an interesting point about Dar al Hadith al Ashrafiyya in Damascus. So, again, like a lot of things when we read Islamic history, like how should I say this? We know what we've heard. In general, we know what we've heard. And oftentimes there's certain things that have been pushed. Certain things have been pushed against, so on and so forth in the Muslim community. In the end of the day, the question is, what did what was said about this? It's not, is it familiar to me or not? Okay? So a lot of times something will be familiar to me. I grew up in my my growing up in Islam experience was one wherein everything was haram and everything was bid'ah and nothing was allowed and you couldn't do anything, and there was like no flavor to the entire experience of the religion. It was really bad. And 
that's not a problem if it's true. Right? Like if something's actually haram or something's actually bidah, it's fine. No problem. If it's true. But if you start to look up these things and you're like, wait a second. The four madhab said I could do that? But you're telling me it's bidah? Like, I'll give you an example. It just happened this week. Because I live in, you know, I don't want to throw any particular cities under the shade, under the bus. <laughs> but I live in a different city now. And sometimes it makes me crazy. Wallahi, it makes me crazy. I'm like, is this for real? Am I just, is this the twilight zone? Like, did I walk into a warp and like end up on the other side? <laughs> or having a conversation about whether or not you can wipe your face after you make dua. I'm like, are we really having this conversation? <laughs> I'm like, if we, like, I haven't, I told them. I told them, honestly, I haven't. There's a handful of issues, 50 of them that are made into the big issues, and I haven't reviewed them for 15 years. Because I reviewed them, I closed the door, I didn't go back. <laughs> so I don't know, off the top of my head. Then I went home and I was like, let me look it up. You know, off the top of my head, I didn't know. Like honestly, I, I didn't know like, who said what, and so on and so forth. So I was like, I don't remember. But what I know is I've seen all of my teachers wipe their face after they make door. Right? That's what I know. So I started looking online. Of course, in English, you find a bunch of stuff that says you can't do it. It's a bid'ah, the hadith about it. It's actually a weak hadith, so on and so forth. Actually, subhanAllah, you know who said it's an acceptable hadith? Ibn Hajr, the one that we were just talking about. Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani, he said it's an acceptable hadith. The hadith where the Prophet ﷺ wiped his face after he made dua. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever. That's the discourse in the hadith. What did the madhab say about it? Four madhab say, wipe your face after you make dua. So why is this a conversation? You don't want to do it? Don't do it. But like, why is it a conversation? Anyways, why am I saying all of this? Because of what I'm about to read you. He was the head of Darul Hadith and Ashrafiyya in Damascus. Again, understand. 600s, 700s, 800s. Actually, it depends on the period. But generally speaking, the major centers of Islamic learning throughout history are a handful. There's a handful of major centers. One is Cairo. One is Damascus. You can probably include Halab. Uh, there's, of course, Hadramaut. Sana'a at some level. But not, probably not even as much as Hadramaut. Uh, Faz, of course, in Morocco. Um, Zaytuna, Qarawiyin. The these are the major centers. East Africa at certain points. West Africa at certain points. Major places, Mauritania. You know, these are the major places. So, my point of all this to say is that if you're the head scholar and rector of the Hadith school in Damascus, that's a big deal. Like something that's happening there is not being approved by one person or two people, it's being approved by like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very senior people, okay? Again, like it's important to have some scale. So it says what? In the time of An-Nawawi, Dar al-Hadith had the noble sandal of the Prophet وسلم, in its possession. So it had actual authenticated Relic sandal of the Prophet from his life. They had the sandal of the Prophet in this school. The sandal was kept in a wooden box above the mihrab in the masjid. All of everything I just said for the last 10 minutes was for this sentence. <laughs> the sandal was kept in a wooden box above the mihrab in, in the masjid. So many people are looking at me like, well, where did you get this from? How is that from the hadith? Where is this from the sunnah of the Prophet them, So on and so forth, right? And they would probably say very simply like, where is not honoring the Prophet them 
like how is not like how is honoring the Prophet them not from the Sunnah of the Prophet basically so it's his sandal yeah they put this sandal above the prayer place why so then when you stand there and you pray the sandal of the Prophet them is above your head is there like a text that says you can do that is there this or that no but kind of makes sense my point is even if it doesn't feel right to you know that like there are a lot of people like these are the biographies of the people we're reading so sometimes we don't feel right about things not because they're not right but because we have a certain psychological disposition because of what we've been exposed to so at the Majlis for example on every other Thursday night we have a gathering where people make dhikr and they do it in a group me personally I don't usually come <laughs> not because I have any issue with it because I live far and I come already a couple times and stuff but like Still internally, I'm still having a hard time getting over the psychological consequences of my first couple years of Islam. So when people come and they make dhikr and like, it's really like if I'm somewhere else, I'm totally fine. Like if you put me in, I don't know, Cairo, and someone was having a dhikr gathering and we made dhikr, I'd be totally fine. Everyone make dhikr, we'd be fine. If I was in Istanbul or somewhere, it'd be okay. But put me in California, and like. There's a dhikr gathering and I get nervous. It's like this is my disposition because of what I experienced. Does that have anything to do with knowledge? It has nothing to do with knowledge. It's purely a psychological issue. It's, 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 and it's, sometimes it's hard to get over the things that we've, uh, we're accustomed to psychologically. All right, anyways. Select bibliography of Shaykh al-Islam and Nawi. Select bi- bibliography. He was clearly a person of tremendous barakah. You always hear the 40 hadith. The book, the 40 hadith, the 40 hadith, 40 hadith, 40 hadith, 40 hadith. There's many 40 hadith written in Islamic history on all kinds of topics. Even in the, in the library, in the office, we have like three or four different 40 hadith collections. The, when if someone says 40 hadith and they don't tell you who, you automatically assume it's a no'u. His is the main one. And no'u's 40 hadith is the main one. Another book that he wrote that's very famous is Riyadh al-Salihin, Gardens of the Righteous. Riyadh al-Salihin. It's a hadith collection also. Generally, hadith books were not written for people like common people. Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, they're, they're meant for people of knowledge. Riyadh al-Salihin was more for common people. You can pick it up, you can read it, you get benefit, it'll tell you the things you should do, things you shouldn't do, so on and so forth, and it's pretty straightforward. The main thing you need to know about Riyadh al-Salihin is that the whole section on things that are prohibited, vast majority <coughs> of those things that are prohibited are prohibited as in they are disliked, not as in they are haram. If you know that principle, you're pretty good. You can read the rest of the book, you'll be okay. If you don't know that principle, you make mistakes. You start thinking like, oh my God, all 500 of these hadith, all of these things are haram, I need to go start correcting people. And you start correcting people on things you shouldn't be really doing that on. But Riyadh al-Salihin is a great book. He also has a book called, uh, both of these are translated, of course. Riyadh al-Salihin has a really good translation now, and abridgment. Uh, Sheikh Yusuf al-Nabahani who's buried in Beirut he's a like, relatively recent scholar he did a abridgment and then some Syrian scholars they included their commentary and they translated it uh, as Riyadh al-Salihin it has like a red cover by Turath Publishing I'm not exaggerating I think that every Muslim family should have this book in their home so there's, there's like at least 5 or 10 books you should have in your home it's a little bit expensive Riyadh al-Salihin this one but it's really well done it has the English, it has the Arabic, paper quality is nice, translation is good, commentary is solid, so on and so forth. You may find other older versions that have commentary also. 
just buy the new one and put the other ones away. Number three, Al-Adhkar, Kitab Al-Adhkar, the Book of Remembrances. It's also been translated, same, same company translated it. Looks very similar to the other one, very well done. Translation's very good, there's Arabic, there's English, there's even transliteration. It's an entire book on the dua and dhikr of the Prophet ﷺ for everything you can think of. It's like the translation is like this thing. So you have du'as for everything. Prophet said this, said that. And no, we sometimes will put a little bit of commentary. It's a great book. Alhamdulillah, it's been translated. It's really great. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he taught Kitab al-Adhkar. The same Ibn Hajar we're talking about. He taught this book al-Adhkar. 660 classes. He taught on the book. Some of which have been published. Uh, he also, and no, he also has the most famous commentary on Sahih Muslim. Sahih Muslim, the collection of Muslim of Hadith. He has the most famous commentary on Muslim. Every time I think about his commentary on Muslim, I think about how I don't buy books in Arabic now that I live in America. I've bought like maybe 10 or 15 books in Arabic since I moved to America, moved back. Because you just can't afford them. Someone goes and buys them, you bring them. Why do I always think about it on this book? Because I recall buying the commentary of Sahih Muslim by Anawi. I bought it for $40. It's 10 volumes. It's like, it, it's about this big. <laughs> I bought it for $40. I can't, like, how are you going to do it? You buy this here, it's going to cost you $400. You can't do it. He also has the weird of Anawi, he mentioned. He also has one of the biggest books in fiqh. So look at like the, the level of his works. He died so young. He also has a book called Al-Majmu'ah. He wrote here Al-Majmu'ah. I don't know if there's two names of it, but usually I've seen it as Al-Majmu'ah. It's literally, without exaggeration, like 30 volumes. Comparative fiqh. It gives you the madhabs and the difference of opinions and the reasonings and so on. It's amazing. And then he has like several books that are smaller at different levels. Also in fiqh in the Shafi'i madhab. So he basically wrote the whole Shafi'i curriculum. Beginning text, medium text, high level text, and then the highest level text. Uh, Ghazali did this also, by the way. The reason I mention this is because people think like, oh, they just wrote these books on like spiritual things and stuff. Ghazali wrote the middle, beginning, middle, advanced text in the Shafi'i school, and they're, they're recognized texts. And he also wrote one of the most recognized texts in the legal theory, Imam Ghazali. Anyways, you read their biographies, you don't dis, uh, dis, disregard them as quickly. He went on a trip from Noah to Jerusalem in, in Hebron, Khalil. And then he died in his father's house after a short illness. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Okay? That's Imam Noah's life. Wow. Okay. Bismillah. Author's introduction. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qala al-Musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala wa nafa'na Allahu yahu bi'ulumihi fi al-darain. Ameen. Say Ameen. Author's introduction. In the name of Allah, most merciful and compassionate. Praise be to Allah, the benefactor, possessor of infinite power, superiority and perfection, who guided us to belief and who has made our religion superior to all the rest. He graced us by sending us the one most noble unto him, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, through whom he effaced idol worship, he honored him with the miraculous Qur'an, which endures despite the passing of time. 
With it, he challenges humankind and jinn in their entirety, and with it, he silences the misguiders and transgressors. He made it a comfort for the hearts of the insightful and the perceptive. It does not become dulled with frequent repetition and the changing of time. He has made it easy to remember so that even young children may memorize it. He multiplied the reward for reciting it and extolled it greatly. So this book, and this is the abridgment, is one of the like most famous books in, on this topic. The etiquettes of the student of Qur'an and stuff like that. So we see that he wrote the famous 40, most famous 40 hadith. He wrote the most famous book on etiquettes with the Qur'an. He wrote the most famous book on hadith for the general person. He wrote one of the most famous books in fiqh. And he wrote one. And he wrote the most famous commentary on Muslim. Now you talk about tawfiq, Subhanallah. I guess clear, clear evidence of tawfiq. What I wanted to say about this is that the memorization of the Quran. I know, I know. In our community, uh, we're very much about learning the meaning of the Quran. And I think that learning the meaning of the Quran is a really, of course, important thing and a wonderful thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't memorize it. And uh, the, the way of the Muslims for all of Muslim history is that they memorize the Qur'an. They memorize the Qur'an. Uh, God bless IOK for maintaining this on behalf of the entire Southern California community uh, when it comes to memorization of the Qur'an. And also Ustad Abadiyah, mashallah, she also produces some hafad. Uh, Sheikh Ibrahim, Sheikh Muhammad, other people teach, mashallah, but for whatever reason it is, they haven't produced as many hafad. We need to produce hafad. It's important. It's, of course, there's a lot of other things to learn in Islamic studies and everything else, but uh, it's really not that hard. It takes some discipline, but it's not that hard if someone really wants to do it. And I think that our community in Southern California is kind of unique in terms of how few people we produce as memorizers of the Qur'an. And I think that we need to, uh, like collectively, uh, like we need to work a little bit harder on this. Uh, we're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, population of Muslims in the entire country. If you put the kind of like greater LA together, LA, Orange County, and we're not producing enough Qur'an. I saw this picture from uh, Sheikh Yasser Birjas in, in Dallas, you know, at his masjid in Ramadan, Valley Ranch. Valley Ranch in Ramadan on the last, last night of Tarawih. They had 10 qurra for 20 verses, 20 rakah. 10 qurra for 20 rakah. And they were all like younger. Like, they look like people in the community who memorize the Quran, right? They, and I know like one of my friends lives in that area, his son memorized the Quran, he's probably like 12 years old or something, you know, so like, somehow we need to do it, I don't know how we're going to do it, but somehow we need to do it, mashallah, I, I, if you follow IOK on social media, you see like, every week for the last three, four weeks, they've posted so-and-so finished their hips today, so-and-so finished their hips today, so-and-so finished their hips today, and every week it's like 12, 13 year old, 14 year old person. They finish their hips, they finish their hips, they finish their hips, so on and so forth. If you're used to memorizing, it doesn't take that long. Like someone who sits, and especially if you're young, you know, uh, if a person memorizes regularly, they should be able to get to the point where they can memorize half a page in a sitting, 
that will take them probably 15 minutes. Really. Like actually, if more than that. Most of the people, I mean, out of probably, other people can tell us. Like, I know people who, when they got into their habit of memorizing, they're memorizing a robot a day, two and a half pages a day, and like half an hour. Now there's the review and everything else they have to do. But my point is, if someone gets in a habit and they do it, then they'll be able to memorize probably half a page in 15 minutes. And then they can review the rest of everything else they memorized, whatever their schedule is for that day. And maybe like another hour. And if they do that for four years, they'll finish the Quran. So if you're in like sixth grade, seventh grade, something, eighth grade, and you start, and you'll finish by the time you graduate high school. You don't have to go on like a crazy schedule. But you don't, not like, it's not like anyone's doing anything else. You're watching Instagram for four hours a day and like TikTok for another two. And then staring at yourself in the mirror for another, going to the gym for two more, and like that's your whole life, you know. So take an hour and like memorize some Quran. <laughs> Allah forgive me. Why am I saying this? Because I wish I would have done it. I wish I did it. Okay. Now I'm like 40 Hijri years old, and it takes me much longer than 15 minutes to do half a page. It just takes longer. When you're young, it sticks. It's easy. Allah help us. Imagine, subhanAllah, IOK. I think about IOK sometimes. Like, IOK supplying hafad for Ramadan in so many masajid. Uh, there was a few years back, we actually had, like, when I was working at IOK, we had a list. It was like, this masjid so-and-so is leading, this masjid so-and-so. There was like 20 masajid in Southern California. All of them were led from Qurat from IOK. It was an amazing thing, subhanAllah. We have to study. We have to have some himma. All right. One paragraph. Second paragraph. I offer him the greatest praise for this and for the innumerable graces he has bestowed upon us in all times and occasions. I ask him for the generous bestowal of his good favor upon me and all of my loved ones. I testify that there is no deity other than Allah, a testimony which attains forgiveness, saves from the fire anyone who utters it, and brings one to reside in paradise. Allahumma amin. To commence. Allah sublime and most high has graced this nation He made the dua Look at, look at the old scholars too They make dua for you when they write for you Alright, it's amazing They were like No, my brother Allah have mercy on you like You get the dua every time you know? He says Allah has uh, Allah sublime and most high has graced this nation May he increase it and its people in honor Ameen with the religion that he chose for himself, the religion of Islam. He has graced us by sending the best of his creation, Muhammad wasallam, And he honored us with his book, the best of all speech. He gave us his way. He gave us the best of human beings. And he gave us his book, subhanAllah. So Allah sublime and most high gathered in it all that is needed. It includes the stories of the first people and the last. Spiritual counsel, similitudes, etiquette and rulings of all types. And it includes clear, unshakable proofs indicating his absolute unity and other things that his messengers brought. Irrefutable arguments against the followers of ignoble heresies. He encourages us to recite it. He orders us to heed it and give it veneration, to adhere to it through proper conduct and to spend generously in honoring it. I have seen, he's saying in Damascus, the people of our land, Damascus, may Allah most high protect it and preserve it and all other lands of Islam. Ameen. Concentrating on reciting the mighty Qur'an 
through studying, instructing, reading, and learning it in groups and individually. They spend enormous efforts in this, day and night. May Allah increase their desire for it and for all kinds of obedience. Look how many times you made dua now for the people. SubhanAllah. Ameen. Desiring thereby the pleasure of Allah, the possessor of majesty and honor. This inspired me to put together a concise treaty concerning the proper etiquette to be observed by the bearers of the Qur'an and the characteristics of its memorizers and students. Usually there's like three things you'll see in introductions. First possibility, someone asked me to write this, so I wrote it. Uh, second possibility is basically students. The first one is students, second one is teachers. They asked me to write on this, so I wrote on it. Third possibility is, I saw that there was some sort of need, so I fulfilled, I, I filled it, and I made a stikhara when I did it. But usually these are like how they end up writing something. I compiled this, clarified it, explained it, and did it skillfully. I named it At-Tibyan Fi Adab Hamalatul Qur'an. Within it, I mentioned precious matters that memorizers must know, and it would be repugnant and frustrating for them to remain ignorant of these things. I then saw, basically, that I should summarize it. So these are the sections. The merit of reciting the Qur'an. The precedence of recita recitation and of reciters. Honoring the folk, folk of the Qur'an. The etiquette of its teachers and students, the etiquette of its bearers, the etiquette of its recitation, the etiquette of all the people with the Qur'an, verses and chapters recommended at particular times, and writing the Qur'an and respecting its written form. Alright, so that's what is in the book. Chapter 1. The merit of reciting and bearing the Qur'an. Any questions so far? Comments? We're good so far? The merit of reciting and bearing the Qur'an. Allah mighty and majestic says, Those who read the book of Allah and establish the prayer and spend secretly and openly from that which He has bestowed on them. They look forward to imperishable gain so that He will fully recompense them their wages and increase them of His grace. Subhanahu. Chapter 35, 29-30. Uthman ibn Affan anhu, said that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, the best among you is one who learns the Qur'an and teaches it. خَيْرُكُمْ مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ وَعَلَّمَهُ خَيْرُكُمْ مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ وَعَلَّمَهُ The best of you is the one who teaches the, uh, learns the Qur'an and teaches it. There's something that's going to come up, uh, but I might as well bring it up now. Might as well? I might as well wait. We'll wait, we come in chapter 2. Aisha radiallahu anha said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, The one who recites the Qur'an stammering, it being difficult for him, has two rewards. This is a famous hadith, right? The one who recites the Qur'an and it's difficult for them, then they have two rewards. They have double the reward. What about the one who recites it and doesn't, doesn't have that? Do you remember? Because always, it's good, we, we say this part of the hadith to encourage people. You know? Like you're struggling with the Qur'an, don't worry, don't give up, you keep practicing, you keep trying, inshallah you'll get there, you'll be able to recite easily and comfortably and so on. By the way, even still you're going to have some days, it's really just doesn't, your mouth doesn't work properly. <laughs> Thursday I had Qur'an class, you guys met Shaykh Abdullah. Thursday I had Qur'an class, it was so frustrating. And I've been focusing on only recitation for the most part. For almost two years now. And it was so frustrating. Like I almost just wanted to start crying and leave my life. Just nothing would come out right. 
Subhanallah. But sometimes it's difficult. You get double the reward. What is it? What does the hadith say about the one who doesn't do that? Anyone remember? No. الذي يقرأ القرآن وهو ماهر مع سفرة كرام البررة مع سفرة كرام البررة. They are with the angels. Safarat and Kiram and Barara are the angels that write. Right? The angels that accompany the people and they write their deeds and so on. The one who recites the Quran without that and they just recite it smoothly, it's like they're on the level with the angels. And the one who has difficulty, they get double the reward. So I, I worry sometimes, I'm like, if you keep hearing the second part of the hadith, maybe they'll never learn how to read it easily. So be like, I want double the reward. <laughs> just stay in double the reward for your life because, like, I want double. Oh, you want to get with the angels. Ibn Umar said, There is no envy except concerning two. A person to whom Allah, to whom Allah has given the Qur'an, and he conforms to it night and day. He recites it night and day. And a person to whom Allah has given wealth, from which he or she spends charitably night and day. So there's two. Two things to be jealous of. One person Allah gave them the Qur'an, they're always reciting it. They have a beautiful relationship with it. Another person, Allah has given them tremendous wealth and they're always giving. They're always giving, they're not holding on to it. And these, these are two things to be jealous jealous of in a good, good way. Abdullah bin Mas'ud also transmitted the hadith with the following wording There is no envy except concerning two a person to whom Allah has given wealth and he expended it all for the sake of Allah, and a person to whom Allah has given wisdom and he judges according to it and teaches it. So now here you get a little bit of what I was going to mention, it's going to come later. The, this, this narration says the one who has wealth and the person Allah has given wisdom and they teach it. He's given them wisdom and they teach it. So it goes down to the question of who is the Qari? It's going to come. So, Abu Umama al-Bahili reported that the Messenger of Allah said, Recite the Quran for on the Day of Judgment it will come to intercede for its companion. Imagine. You recite the Quran, on the Day of Judgment it comes for you. There's narrations that specifically mention Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Ali Imran. But on the Day of Judgment, the person will come and everything will be there and their judgment will start and Surah Al-Baqarah will show up. SubhanAllah. <laughs> Can you imagine? You memorize Surah Al-Baqarah and the, you're on the Day of Judgment, Baqarah shows up. You're like, SubhanAllah. And then, and then you're still worried and Ali Imran shows up. You're like, wow. Like, this is, alhamdulillah. Uh, Oh, it's good company. Umar ibn Khattab said, he doesn't mention actually, but we know the other narration, that on the Day of Judgment it will be said to the person, recite, and for every verse that they recite, they go higher and higher and higher. By the way, some of the scholars, they said for the person who makes the intention to memorize the Qur'an, and they go on a path to do it, even though they might stumble and they might slow down and it might take them time at certain places and so on and so forth. Some of them said that if that person dies before they finish the Qur'an, the angels will come to them in the grave and finish the Qur'an with them. Uh, on their niyyah. Is there a text for it? Allahu alam. There might be some weak narrations or something. But they said this, yani, that person will they'll finish it. SubhanAllah. And then what happens on the Day of Judgment when they recite? They'll recite the whole thing. And they'll go higher and higher and higher and higher. 
The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah Most High exalts some groups with this book and debases others. And Allah yarfa'u bihadin kitab aqwamin wa yada'u bihi akhareen. Allah elevates some people and debases others. Speaking of IOK, I said this recently a couple places. When we were in Cairo in the beginning, studying Arabic. Some people don't know this. When we were studying Arabic, this was like a, it was a great time in Cairo. A lot of people were coming, a lot of people were in and out, so on and so forth. Sheikh Ahmed Billu went to Cairo before he went to Medina. Studied Arabic in Cairo before he went to Medina. Sheikh Farhan Zuberi went to Cairo, studied Arabic before he went to Karachi. Um, Imam Mustafa Omar came to, Ar- came to Egypt, studied Arabic before he went to France. All, many people went there before they went other places or they stayed there. Or they came there and they studied Arabic. It was like a time, it was a very lively time. Um, in our neighborhood, in Cairo, in our neighborhood, in Cairo, on any given Maghrib or Isha, you could go to three different masjids and be led in Salat by an Imam from Southern California. <laughs> Can you believe that? All of them IOK people. Sheikh <laughs> Farhan, because local little, local little masajid don't always have a hafiz, right? They don't always have an Imam. It's just a neighborhood masjid, little musalla. So eventually, like, Sheikh Farhan would be praying there, maybe someone would come, and they'd be like, you know, he's actually a hafiz. So then the people would be like, oh, mashallah, what are you doing? Be like, you know, I'm here to study, learn Arabic, whatever. They'd be like, okay. Then whenever they see him, he leads salah. So you go, if you go to that masjid, Sheikh Farhan is leading Maghrib and Isha. <laughs> if you go to this masjid, then uh, what's the name? Hafiz Fayez, data boy. He would be leading Maghrib and Isha and the other masjid. Uh, who was the third person? Sheikh Ahmed Billu, of course, would be leading sometimes. Uh, sometimes you go to a certain masjid if they knew Imam Suhaib, Suhaib Webb, he would be leading. Um, Sheikh Umar Kamil sometimes would be leading. He's in the Bay Area. He went. He, he, he went and he finished his ten qirayat in Egypt and graduated from the College of Tafsir, all while continuing in in computer science. He worked for Oracle the whole time he was in Egypt. <laughs> Came back and worked for Google. Subhanallah, he's still in uh, tech. Um, who was the third person? Though? Subhanallah. Anyways, no, it wasn't me. I'm not a hafiz, unfortunately. Up to today, I'm not a hafid, I'm a miskeen when it comes to him. Pray for me. But, uh, it might have been a- There was someone else, I can't remember. Huh? Someone said it? Okay. can't remember who it was. Anyways, there were three, whoever it was. Uh, SubhanAllah, it was amazing. Like, you know, you're in Cairo, which is like the center of Quran, really. <laughs> like, it's a major place for Quran. And, like, your local kids are leading Salat. Everyone's t- this is when everyone's young, like everyone's 21, 22, 23, stuff like that. They're leading Salat. It was amazing. Allah elevates people by this book. That's because it's a great honor, right? To lead Salat is a great honor. So, and the one who's Aqra leads them, which we're going to come to in a second. This is the point I was getting at. Last hadith in the section, Ibn Abbas said, very important. Someone without Quran in his heart or her heart is like a ruined house. It's like a ruined house. They're like Kebaitin Kharib. They're like a house with nothing in it. You put some Qur'an in the heart, but now the house has something in it. Putting furniture in the house, decorating the house, making the house really beautiful. The house that's inside the heart of the person. Okay, chapter 2, where we get into this issue that I was alluding to seven times. The precedent of recitation and reciters. <coughs> the Prophet ﷺ said, Whosoever is the best in reciting the Book of Allah Most High should lead the people. Whosoever is the best in reciting the Book of Allah should lead the people. 
Most of the madhabs actually said that this means the one who's most knowledgeable. As long as they understand, they have some basic Quran memorized, and they know the basic rules of the Quran, then this applies to the one who's most knowledgeable, and especially in, in regards to the rules of Salah. Okay. Why? Because if they make a mistake, they have to know what to do. And also because when they lead Salat all the time, what's going to happen? Is people are going to ask them questions. And if people ask them questions, they have to know what they're talking about. So who should be leading is the one who has the most knowledge, actually. Uh, this is the Hanafi position. I forget which other method. I know for sure it's the Hanafi position. I think three out of four, if I'm not mistaken. <coughs> Second point here <coughs> is that it doesn't count if the tajweed is not right. So like if you have someone whose tajweed is right and they memorize like two juz, and you have someone else they memorize the whole Quran but their tajweed isn't very good at all, the one who's memorized two juz takes precedence, they're akra, than the one who's memorized the whole Quran. Okay? Not everyone has to be like an absolute specialist in tajweed. But if you take your time and you get it right in the beginning, it helps you a lot later on. Helps you a lot. It's much easier. It's much easier to not like it's much harder I should say if you memorized everything to go back and fix it. Since your mind is like used to it, you know. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu said the reciters, here's here's your evidence. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu he gives you hints. Said the reciters were the companions of the assembly of Omar and his council, whether middle aged or young. What do we know about the council of Omar? is that it was filled with the people of knowledge. And they say that the word qari in the early period, actually he says it, as the Prophet was burying the martyrs from the battle of Uhud, he ordered that the one who was best at reciting the Qur'an be placed closest to the direction of the Qibla. <coughs> actually he doesn't say anything. Uh, so when they're burying them, they're putting two people in the same grave. They say, which one memorized more Qur'an? That one you put closer to the Qibla. So you put them on their right side facing the Qibla, right? Put that one first. And know that the soundest position, the one followed by the scholars who are relied upon, is that reciting the Qur'an is superior to all other forms of remembrance. The evidence for this is patently obvious. He stops. doesn't even give it. So it's just obvious. The best type of dhikr is to recite the Qur'an. Even one of the shiyukh that I, I know, like, the type of shiyukh that will tell you, you should recite this dhikr, you should recite that dhikr, and so on. I heard that one of the things he asked, he'll ask the students when they come to him is like if they're a hafiz or if they're a student of the Qur'an. And if they are, he'll tell them, your word is the Qur'an. Your word is you just make your review, that's your word. You don't worry about everything else, make sure you do that. Um, so I'll close on this point. They say in the time of the Prophet wasallam, that the Qari or the Qurra, the Qurra was a term that was used for the people of knowledge. Not just the reciter. That the person who was a scholar was called a Qari. So many people couldn't read still. Right? Many people couldn't read. And then you had people who were very learned and very knowledgeable and stuff. And they were called the Qurra. They were called the reciters. So there's, it's not until later that like, you have the idea of this person is a faqih. This person is a Qari in the sense of the Qur'an, particularly emphasizing the Qur'an. I mean, generally speaking, all of the early scholars were more advanced in all of the disciplines than pretty much anyone today. 
unless they were, even if they were like a specialist, say like they were known as a qari, they were still more knowledgeable in hadith than pretty much like everyone today. Maybe there's some exceptions, but uh, you get the idea. But nonetheless, they were known for particular things. And the Qurra were the people of knowledge. Wallahu alam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Any comments or questions that anyone has? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's a book called uh, Fortress of the Muslim. Probably some of you have seen it. It's like a little pocket book, Fortress of the Muslim. And people often say that this has like a lot of the du'as from the Quran and the Sunnah and so on. Uh, that's true. Uh, Fortress of the Muslim is written very recently. So the author of there, I don't know if they're still alive, but he might be. Um, but he basically went to like the books of Hadith and pulled out certain hadith for different occasions and made it in the little book and published it, right? It's a really nice book, mashallah. Very useful. Um, but it's very small. Yeah, it's like a little... It's a pocket book. It's probably like the size of the phone, right? Um, Imam Noe's Adhkar is like substantial. You know? My, When you have Arabic-English translation, sometimes you don't really understand exactly how big it is. But like my, my Arabic only version of Al-Adhkar is like a solid 300 pages. So it's far, far more expensive. Um, and of course much earlier in a sense. But in the, in the end everyone's going back to the same primary sources. Which is the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophets. So, but both of them are good. Fortunes of the Muslims is good too. It's not all the time you need to reference like a 300 page book for the Dua, right? But it's nice. Sometimes you find stuff, you're like, wow, there's a Dua for that. Like there's a du'a for pimples. <laughs> you find it in Seven of God. Yeah. Uh, if you're just if you're starting to memorize the Quran, do you think it's better to just like study Arabic first or read the Quran and like learn the translation? Uh I mean it depends on the person and what their goals are. I mean I think that So my opinion after wasting a portion of 15 years of my life is that it's good to start the Qur'an and memorize from the Qur'an. And you don't lose anything in that. There's only, there's only something to gain. And if it's 15 minutes, it's 15 minutes. If it's half an hour, it's half an hour. And, and on the side of that, like it's very common, you find people who memorize the Qur'an, they also learn Arabic. Because in the course of doing that, they're going to find words that are familiar, they're going to learn them. And over time, they'll understand more and more. Um, of course, if you learn Arabic and you memorize it, it makes it easier at some level. In some ways. In some ways, it makes it a little bit harder. Because when you can understand the meaning, you lean on the meaning. And you start to think about it. You might start reciting. And you're, like for me, for example, the stuff that I've read, the stuff that I memorized before I learned Arabic, I usually don't recite in prayer. Because I usually get like half panic attacks, anxiety when I when I lead prayer, and uh, and if um, if I go to the stuff that I memorized from before, I start to get messed up. 
because I memorized it without thinking about it. And now I'm like reciting what I memorized, not thinking about it, but now I'm thinking about it because I understand it. And I'm like, wait a second. Should there be Alif Lam here or not? Or like, should it be this or should it be that? And I start to get mixed up. And the stuff that I did later is different <laughs> in a sense. But, so I think that when someone doesn't understand Arabic, they just like straight up memorize what it is, just put it in. You know, and you learn it. So. There's good in both. And I think people are different. And what works for, for you know, one of the things I, d- I, I did a lot, and I think the people in our kind of like raised here do a lot, is we're always looking for the best method or the best technique or like what's the hack for this or that or whatever, you know? Uh, I did that all the time. Like I remember talking to Sheikh Farhan about this when we were in Egypt. Like, Sheikh, what's the best way to do it? Should I memorize like a page? Should I memorize the whole page at once and then like review it? Or you do the first one, then the second one, you bring them together and like and what's, what's the best approach, right? And what I found over time is every Hafid that I asked, they gave me a different answer. Because everyone had like their own method that ended up working for them and that's what worked for them. So, you know, just memorize and inshallah it'll, it'll come all the time. Figure out what works and don't give up. Because it's frustrating. You forget it and like you feel bad about it. Allahu Yeah. What about the facility in our areas of the Another thing rather what in Bangladesh and Alhamdulillah, big thing going on. Hard people take a fight, sending their children six, seven, eight years old, in three, four years they are much uh, yeah. And that becomes very easy. Yeah. Treating is impossible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Young age, no question of meaning or anything. They learn the Hasveed and Alhamdulillah. Yeah. The Lord of Yeah. The issue is sometimes culture is different, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to harm people at the same time that we want them to be hafid. So, what are the facilities here to like send someone? I don't know. I don't know. The, the two people I've seen graduate hafad, or the two places I've really seen graduate hafad, are IOK and Ustad Abadia, Quran School and IOC. Not that, other, again, not that other people aren't good teachers and stuff, they are. But I think part of the challenge is it needs a culture. When you have a culture around it, People do it. Uh, Southern California, we're still trying to get a culture on it. When it comes to sending people different places, I don't know. If you're gonna send some, if you're gonna send your kid somewhere, though, make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure you do your really good due diligence. Make sure you know exactly what you're doing, who you're sending them to. Make sure you're checking in with them regularly. Make sure you have some really serious conversations with them about like abuse and what it looks like and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and all of these kind of issues because there's been a lot of these issues right in boarding schools and stuff so just be careful and talk to Allah uh, and Amr had some things this is a good question, yeah. So he's saying that some of the Sahaba has said about them it took them 10 years to memorize Surah Al-Baqarah, for example. Because they want to memorize it and apply it, memorize it and apply it. Uh, other Sahabi said we would me- learn five verses at a time and then we do it and then we continue, right? 
Uh, by the way, even with Imam Muslim, he says this, that any hadith that he memorized, he would act upon it. But oftentimes what they'll say is that that meant that they would do whatever was in that thing at least once. So like, you learn something in the verse, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. You could do that in a day, right? Um, but like, will the Qur'an come and be your witness if you memorize Surah Al-Baqarah and you ignored all of the teachings in it? Of course not. It's going to be a witness against you. Will Surah Al-Baqarah come and be a witness for the person if they really understood it and they applied it in their life but they didn't fully memorize it? Probably it will come for them. I think it will come for them. So there's... Yes, we should learn it. We should act upon it. That's the primary thing is that the Qur'an is meant to be understood. Um, and the memorization is meant to be a means to facilitate the understanding and the, and the action. That I have this, I know this verse, nobody can take it from me. Uh, one of our teachers, by the way, he said something interesting about that narration of about 10 years. Uh, Sheikh Nabil al-Jawhari, I think he's still alive. He taught us ulum al-Qur'an. And uh, he said that, that that narration that said that it took them 10 years to memorize Surah Al-Baqarah. He said, what is Baqarah, Medani or Mecki? Anyone? You know Medani, Mecki? Like a Mecki surah is revealed before Hijra. Medani surahs are revealed after Hijra. It's Baqarah. Medani. Baqarah is Medani. And the second to last verse revealed from the Quran is in Surah Al-Baqarah. It's in Surah Al-Baqarah. And from the early verses in Medina, it's also in Surah Al-Baqarah. <laughs> so what is his point? It has to take you 10 years to memorize Surah Al-Baqarah. <laughs> if you're with the Prophet you cannot actually memorize Surah Al-Baqarah in less than 10 years. <laughs> if you're there from the beginning of Medina to the end of Medina. Unless you're like, you know, you came in the end period of Medina and you're catching up or something. But it was revealed actually over 10 years. So, he was trying to say like, maybe there's some it's like the reality is there were many, 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 many Sahaba who memorized the entirety of the Qur'an. And it was only after like dozens and dozens and dozens of them started getting killed in battles that Sayyidina Omar went to Sayyidina Abu Bakr and was like, we have to put it in writing. Up to that point, they were like, we have all these hafad. We don't need it in writing. We don't need it in one book. Like people wrote down different pieces. They had them in different places. Uh, but they didn't have it like in one book in the time of the Prophet That happened in the time of Abu Bakr. So, just to give Abu Bakr was a Khalifa for two and a half years, so that's really fast. Like in the in the grand scheme of scripture, that's really fast. And within two and a half years, it was in one book, uh, approved by all of the Sahaba who had memorized it. So, Allahu But I think that there's, yeah, we should act upon it for sure. Uh, and the Quran is, uh, they always say, Quran hujjatun dak awa alaik. That the knowledge is evidence for you or against you. Quran is evidence for you or against you. And this is also why, like, a lot of traditional Islamic studies wasn't forced. Like, yeah, they did it. They had definitely, like, kids got hit for memorization and stuff like that. I'm not saying that. But, and I'm not saying they should do that. I'm just saying that, like, what am I trying to get at? You give something to people when they want it. If they don't want it, like if, if I'm dealing with a kid and they don't want to learn, 
I'm not going to teach them like everything there is to know about Islam. All of that's an evidence against them now. Mm-hmm. But if they come and they want it, then we give them everything we have. That's generally the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Allah help us. There's food. Anyone can get food at any time. Yes. Yeah. The difference is. What was the question? Yeah. So the question was when I said that I have uh, some hesitation doing dhikr out loud in, congrega- in in a group in Southern California versus maybe like other places. What's what's the reasoning behind that? Uh, and in this question, there's a really important reminder for people from my generation, which is that the community has sailed beyond, sailed past the traumas that people from my generation went through, which is alhamdulillah a wonderful thing. And inshallah, all of you, and as long as you live in Orange County, inshallah, you won't face the same traumas. If you drive somewhere else, you might. But uh, so, what is the issue here? The issue here is that uh, certain people, and the position is there in Islamic history, have taken the position that it's impermissible for a group of people to sit together and make the coup. So, if we were to sit together right now and we were to say. All of us are going to say La ilaha illallah together ten times. And we said La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah. Then they would say that that's haram. And if I did that as a religious teacher, not only would they say that that's haram, but they'd say this is an evidence that this person is misguided and we shouldn't take anything from this person. And maybe they won't even pray behind me, some of these people. Maybe they won't say salam to me. I had a person actually at ICY, he wouldn't say salam to me. He'd come every day, <laughs> pray, and he wouldn't say salam to me. SubhanAllah. So I'd say salam to him, and he would just walk away. I'd say salam to him, and he would walk away. I'd say salam to him, and he would walk away. And then he'd give me these big printouts of like opinions on issues. And I'm like, alhamdulillah, we're both really good at copy-paste. I mean, like, anyone can go and copy-paste stuff. But anyways, so, uh, so the people, there are people that made big issue out of this. And for the most part, see now, I don't want to make it into like, I'm trying to bash anybody. For the most part, this position, its prominence originated in Saudi Arabia. Okay. This, is intele- this is an intellectual, like an academic fact. I'm not trying, again, like I really don't want this to come off as polemics. This is an academic fact. The popularization of this position began in Saudi Arabia maybe 200 years ago. And then what happened when Islam started to spread to America is that a lot of the things that were translated were things that were from these places. And so what everyone had access to was those things. And uh, so people, a lot of times they were doing what they thought they feel was sincerely right. That's what they had access to. That's what they knew. Um, like I said, even right now when you, tra- when you type it in in English on the internet, usually that's what pops up. So because of that, it's different. However, up to today, in the, again, like, long-standing Muslim-majority places, these are things that are, like, almost musallam, like, everyone does them. If you go to Morocco, everyone makes liquor together. If you go to Tunisia, everyone makes liquor together. You go to Libya, everyone makes liquor together. Only the places where that movement gains some sort of stronghold do you have any sort of issues around this. In Egypt, you find 
people make zikr together all the time. I mean, like, you go to the masajid, especially on, like, special occasions and stuff, you know. And the funny thing about it is that there's a little bit of um, inconsistency in it. There's a little bit of inconsistency. And I don't mean by this Eid prayer. Some people will be like, well, when you go to Eid prayer, you make dhikr together. I don't, actually, I don't think that's a good argument. When people say, well, you do it on Eid prayer. Because there's clear textual evidence for doing that on Eid prayer. Specifically for doing that, right? We make dhikr out loud together on Eid. That's normal. Uh, the argument here is that you don't have text that says that you should get together and make dhikr together. You just have text that say you should make dhikr. And they don't, they're not limited in any way to together or not together and stuff like that. Um, anyways, this is now getting way too technical. But um, the inconsistency is people will get in the car and put on their Sami Yusuf tape and sing together in the car. People will go to the conference and have the music session in the conference and the person in the conference will come and sing their pop version of the Burda, which is like one of the most famous poems that everyone sings together for the last 800 years. You know, they'll have their like Masood Curtis version of, of the Burda, and he'll come on stage and he'll sing the Burda, and the whole audience will be excited, and everyone will be singing the Burda with him, and there's no issue. And then like we sit after Maghrib prayer and we say, we just want to say Astaghfirullah, Ya Gemaah, 30 times together. Can we say Astaghfirullah 30 times together? And they'll be like, no, this is Bidah. <laughs> like, well, you just sang together in like the the music portion, everyone was singing the same thing together, like what? At least apply it at university. You know? Maybe you should sing it. Maybe you should <laughs> sing it. We do. Honestly, the issue is that I don't want to be labeled. I don't, I don't care for groups. I don't care for all this groupism, all this like this team, that team type stuff. It's not my thing. My thing is knowledge. What have the scholars said? What have the people of knowledge said? If the people of knowledge have said you can't do this thing, I'm fine. We won't do it. But if the people of knowledge have said you can do this thing, and there's a clear benefit to the people in this thing, you know, like when people get together and they make dhikr together and they say like it felt so good, I felt like it refreshed me, I felt like I, you know, all of these other things, then why should I just reject this opinion and go with it? Like, you know, but I don't care about the groupism of it. If someone doesn't want to do it, they don't want to do it. It's fine. You don't have to do it. But just don't tell me I can't. <laughs> that's that's the problem. And then don't go around and like spread rumors about me and stuff like that. That's really it's really unfortunate, you know. And I feel bad because like I went through all of that, and I don't want people to go through that. There's an intellectual consequence to it. It does things to our minds, to our hearts that we shouldn't experience Islam like that and this really like combative, hatred-filled thing, you know. Uh, you know, someone told me recently that, yeah, uh, some people didn't, they don't want to come to the halaqah because, because I studied in Al-Azhar. And I'm just like, subhanAllah, the level of ignorance of this statement is like, under the guise of religion. Like, someone told you this under the guise of religion. And this is such an outrageously ignorant statement. <laughs> you know, if you said, uh, you shouldn't go listen to him because whatever. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the reason would be, but he's arrogant, or like something like that. I'm like, okay, it's true. He's arrogant. Don't go listen to him. That's fine. There's people that are more pious. There's people that are more knowledgeable. There's people you should go to them instead. Hamdulillah, go to them instead. Fine. 
But like he's studying Azhar, so it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, can we just be honest for a second? Like Azhar was the center of learning for like at least 800 years. You know, like literally the center. The, the, like <laughs> the Kaaba's in, in Mecca, the Prophet's Islam is in Medina, knowledge is in Cairo. Like <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you know, everyone will go there, everyone will pass through, everyone would acknowledge it. It wasn't a conversation. It's not a, it's, in any ways, it's logically, it's a fallacy. It's like, you don't make, even that's not an evidence in itself. Who cares? But, it's just, you know, whatever. Anyways. I'm triggered a little bit. By these things. I'm like, I thought we moved on. Yeah. So, I understand when these issues come to Vicky and things that don't, you know, it's not really uh, part of your aqidah, but there are groups and these people that emanate from Saudi that try to, uh, you know, influence the masses with their Akita, and they try to confuse their, you know, WhatsApp little videos that are sent that, you know, you can't put your hands up when you pray, this is Buddha, you can't do this, and then the general people send it around because they don't know any better. So my point to most scholars that are traditional is, why can't we be loud with the correct information? They're very loud, they're, they're promoted through the media, through money, through uh, you know, uh, you know, book. They even change uh, publishers. You know, publishers, yeah. Carl Salam and all that. that yeah. They'll take books and publish them without sections in them. Exactly. So, like literally. So what do we do for our children yeah. growing up here? Because they, they get even some some uh, like teachers at school. They'll. Uh, give that nudge to always, uh, always at the schools because, yeah. like, somehow our teachers in our schools are still like yeah. on a slam from 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having this problem now, you know. Like, I, it's. I, I something yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's going in that direction. Even this week, I saw an image going around. I was like, subhanAllah, that's new. Like you used to see, even in the massages, you would see these images where it's like the person praying. It's like they have their hands here, there's an X mark. And they have their hands here and there's an X mark. And then it's like they have their hands here and there's a check. So I saw the image that I saw going around this week, it was interesting. It was like, there's the image of the person like this and it says, Shafi. <laughs> and then there's an image of the person with their hand below their belly button. It says Hanafi. And then there's another one with the person below their belly. It says Hanbali. That's true, by the way. The actual Mu'atamid of the Hanbali school is you, you do the same hand position as the Hanafi school. And then it was like Maliki and they had their hands at their side. And then it had a fifth one, which was the guy with his hands like this. And it had the X mark on it. And I was like, SubhanAllah, like, we went full circle on this. And then one of the... And then his sister responded and she's like, she's like, oh, I was doing that. I didn't realize that. I was like, no, 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 this is... This is for men, like that's actually, and this is another issue, right? In the madhabs you have actually difference between how women and men should put their hands and stuff. The Hanafis do this. When women in the Hanafi school, you do that. So don't get confused. Uh, anyways, um, you know, um, I think that the, honestly, I think that some of the challenge comes for some people with their livelihood. It's really what it comes down to. So like most of the people, most of the scholars we saw in Egypt and stuff like that, they were very clear on these things. Um, and they had their jobs and they were fine, you know. But if you live like the, the reality is, if you're an imam in the West, 
you are you are subject subjugated to two things the opinions of the board and the opinions of the people and no matter and, and unless the only possibility is you have a board that's willing to support you against the people then you can say whatever you want and you can teach obviously you don't have to be abrasive about it but you can at least say what the truth is and teach people and so on and it'd be okay but maybe the people trust you but the board wants you to do something in particular the board hires you because you have a position on this or that or whatever else it might be and you have a problem or as soon as you do something that upsets the people then the board gets upset because those, that's where their donations come from so now you have to change your position it's like well my position is that Ibn Taymiyyah was a alim in the Hanbali madhab and his opinion in fiqh is accepted insofar as it agrees with the takhrij of the madhab and he's not an, in his works of aqidah are not accepted in the Hanbali madhab and so we don't study his works in aqidah <laughs> if you want to take the Hanbali approach to aqidah you don't study his works he's not the reference point I don't know what, what else to say you know? uh, and we can talk about it we can discuss it we can do whatever but at some point like Again, like the truth has to be said. This is a methodology we follow. Actually, part of Ustad Sheikh Fuad's class on getting our minds right, getting your mind right, is to walk through all of that. Like this is the tradition. This is where it starts. This is how we end up at all these different positions we end up at, and this is what we believe. You know. Uh, so, you know, Inshallah, we'll continue to do that as long as we can continue the measures. <laughs> as long as we can continue it, we'll continue it. Inshallah. Yeah. One comment on IOK, you mentioned, uh, Alhamdulillah, they're blessed. There's so many, uh, you know, Hufaz that have come out. I had a good chance to meet the uh, Imam uh, Noman's uh, mom. Mm. And she oh, was someone that prayed for them night and day. And she was, uh, you know, God bless her soul, she passed away. I mean, but um, people like that are very important in the community. Very important. Very important. Very important. I mean, in the end, again, you know, truth to be told, IOK exists today, why? There's a physical reason, there's a spiritual reason. Uh, Sheikh Noman, when his, when his father passed away when he was young, his mother said, I want him to become an alim, and I want him to be sadaqa jariya for his father. That was her niyyah. And then when he was like, whatever, 14, 15 years old, she sent him to Karachi to study. And he finished. You know? He didn't go to college here. Everyone told the family, like, how are you going to, he's your only son, or he's your, I don't know if he's only your oldest son, but like, that's your son, you're going to send him over there, he's not going to make any money, you don't have a husband, all of these things, right? And she was like, no, I want him to be alim, so he can be sadaqa jariya for his father. And he went, and he studied, and he came back, and he taught. And he taught people to become scholars, right? Like, when he came and uh, started to do these things, all these people were in his programs. Sheikh Farhan, when he was in high school, Hafiz Anas, Sheikh Ahmed Billu, all of these people that went and studied later, and many of them that are now teaching as like seminary teachers in IOK, were Sheikh Noman's students in the beginning when he first came back. And he, w- he went into business consulting because he wanted to you know, make money for his family and prove that he could do that and so on and so forth. And he wanted to buy a house for his mom. 
and he took her and she was like he's like she's like no I don't want this I don't want this I don't want this and he was like what do you want and she was like uh, I want you to I sent you to study so that you can become an alim I didn't send you to study so you can work in business I want you to do knowledge and so that's how IOK started and also IOK one of the place one of the central places that IOK started was in Dr. Sakhir's institute and with complete deference and reverence for Dr. Sakhir and his work and his efforts and Allah Rahman. so like an IOK was an institution where it was started and run from the beginning on the opinion of Sheikh Noaman based in scholarship and with the consultation of people of knowledge and run in a way that's ethical and everything else and we're not going to do what other people tell us to do and I know that there's been times where like people wanted to give money but they wanted to influence things and he ripped the check up you know? so uh, it didn't start like <laughs> those two big beautiful buildings right and all of these profad and like seminary graduates and all this kind of stuff it didn't start like that whatever it was 20 years ago uh, so and I'm sure I'm sure people will say well there's this issue that it doesn't matter like we don't have to agree on everything to be able to say that's the way that an institution should be started that's the philosophy that it should be started with that's the way that it should be run and that's the conclusion that you get instead of like running on a hamster wheel for 30 years or 40 years uh, anyways <laughs> maybe I should I'm gonna stop the live stream <laughs> too little too late